I'm Charlie Redding. And I'm Claire Fudge. And this is the Tribe Athlon Podcast. Because we have fat calories we burn and we have sugar calories we burn. And if we don't burn a lot of fat calories, they go into storage and our aerobic system suffers as a result. So um, so that's a biochemical example of, of overtraining and mental, emotional uh, stress, uh, depression, anxiety, uh, loss of interest in competing, loss of interest in training. Um, these are, I mean, that's an epidemic in all sports. That was Phil Maffetone, and this episode is the heart of endurance, mastering performance with the math method. In this episode, we're honoured to sit down with the legend that is Dr. Phil Maffetone, a pioneer in the realm of endurance training and holistic health. With over four decades of experience, Phil Maffetone has carved a niche in developing the MAF method, which stands for Maximum Aerobic Function, an approach that has revolutionized training in countless endurance athletes, especially triathletes like Mark Allen. His holistic lens doesn't just focus on physical training, it embraces the interconnectedness of diet, mental well-being, and overall health in athletic performance. Deep dive with us as we explore the foundation principles of math, the delicate balance between aerobic and anaerobic training, and the profound role of the heart rate in determining one's aerobic threshold. Phil also shares invaluable insights on the impact of dietary choices on endurance, the signs of overtraining, and the benefits of cross-training. And on the back of his book, Be Sharp, we even dive into the topic of how music improves our mental health. From discussing the longevity benefits of the math method to answering queries um, that we wanted to throw at him, um, like, for example, uh, the choice of training footwear, this episode promises a comprehensive look into the mind of a maestro. Whether you're an athlete or just someone keen on optimizing your health, Phil's wisdom is an absolute treasure trove. So I know that you're going to love this episode with the legend that is Dr. Phil Maffetone. I just wanted to drop in a quick note here to say, after the interview with Phil, Claire and I chat about how this is the last episode of this particular chapter, this particular series of the podcast. And in fact, the last episode of it being called the Tribe Athlon Podcast. We are launching a new name under a new title, slightly new look, slightly new focus, but with the same amazing endurance athletes being interviewed regularly. So listen to Claire and I's outro after the interview with Phil to learn more. How would you like to grow your business whilst working less and enjoying your work life more? Well, that's how we help people at the trusted team. We do that through workshops, which happen in person and online. Uh, We do that through regular online learning that you can just do from your desk at lunchtime. And we do it through in-person 
events that make fun tax deductible. Things like golf days, dinners, wine tasting, all of that fun stuff. They help you build stronger relationships and enjoy work more. Uh, So if you want to know how we can help you grow your business and and improve your work-life balance, go to thetrusted.team to find out when our next free taster event or free webinar is so that you can find out how we can help you grow your business and get your work-life balance back. That's thetrusted.team. Come join us at one of our events. Are you struggling to manage energy levels at work or during training? Finding it hard to know how to fit in eating for health, sport and life? Do you want to separate fact from fiction? At Fourth Discipline, we work with leaders, professionals, athletes and people with medical conditions. We take you on a six-step science-led journey to manage energy, optimise performance, recover well and improve health. We offer enhancement clinics for businesses, supportive online workshops, one-to-one coaching and accountability. If you'd like to have a free call to find out how we can support you, then log on to fourthdiscipline.com and book your call today. So Phil, welcome to the Tribe Athlon podcast. Uh, Your name is a name that has been like, I mean, I've been doing triathlons for about six years and I, your name was mentioned very, very early on in that six year process. And so it's a name that has, has um, been synonymous for me with, with this, with this sport. So to kick things off, tell us a bit about how you found your way into um, the world of endurance sport, and and you know, tell us tell us how you ended up here. Thanks, Charlie. Um, I, I think I was thrown into it. I don't I don't really know how to answer that. It was probably uh, during uh, my college days when I I started understanding about uh, holistic health, and coming from a sports background, it was sort of all one thing. It was not you know, you're an athlete today, and then tomorrow you're an academic, and then the next day you're uh, doing whatever. It's it's all one big thing. And um, so when I got interested uh, more in sports uh, and, and started studying exercise physiology and uh, biofeedback and all of that stuff, it, I looked at it as all one big thing and um, started... Uh, w- working in a, of course I worked at myself um and did some competition but not much um in school uh especially in professional school because there was no time for that kind of stuff um but I started helping um amateur athletes and then I I met someone who's a pro athlete and uh, was able to work with him and and help and um you know it just seemed like a natural Part of uh, my evolution in 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 life, really, and then when I got out and and uh, opened my own clinic, um, the running boom uh, in the seventies, the running boom was booming, and and there were a lot of athletes who were hurt, and I saw a lot of them, and um, it gave me an opportunity to uh, put everything together, and it was kind of odd for most athletes because you know when you have a knee problem you treat the knee well not if you come to see me because i want to talk about your training i want to talk about your nutrition i want to look at your feet because that could be the cause of the knee problem so 
you know, I just I just kind of got into it that way, and it's um, grown, continues to grow, um, and it's certainly been a lot of fun. And and I I remember right from the off hearing about the work that you did with Mark Allen. It was a, was that sort of a key? I mean, is that the professional you were talking about, or is there was was that a? Yeah, tell me a bit about how you really became known and, and and maybe lead that on to, I'm going to ask you a bit about the 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 math mef- method but was that Mark Allen work kind of a big jump up for you or was it just another pro in a long line it, it was just another pro in a long line and it was early in Mark's career Mark hadn't really made much of a name for himself he won a couple of small races and the big guys in front of him uh uh Molina and and um, the big three, they were called. Um, you know, he couldn't; he just couldn't catch them. Um, but, but you know, by that point in my career, the early is I think it was eighty three. I had I had drifted into virtually all sports. I, I was in uh, soccer, American football, um, motorsports, um, uh, track and field. Uh, and and so it was crazy because I was seeing, of course, a lot of runners and then triathlon was fairly new. And I saw my first triathlete, I think, in 78. And I thought, wow, this is a this is an amazing sport. What a perfect way to cross train, because I would always emphasize cross training. Runners were very reluctant to to do anything else. And most most uh, athletes in the sports uh, that I got into were very reluctant to to do anything. But I had race car drivers running, and I had runners cycling, and I had uh, uh, you know football players uh, swimming. I mean, it was it was uh, all part of what I did, along with all the other stuff. So when I saw Mark, actually, Mark um, uh, Mark came to one of my lectures in San Diego. Uh, and Paul and Newby Frazier had just come over from South Africa, uh, looking to figure out this sport and, um, and a bunch of other, um, athletes. And I started working with them. And, um, I think with Mark, it was, Mark's a very intelligent person. And I think with Mark, it was, um, he, he thought there was something about what I was doing that could give him the edge and um it, and but more importantly when i first saw mark he had a he had a, a, a an injury and um and i was able to um to correct it very quickly and he he um he went to a race and won and i think that got his attention um and and he was able to tolerate the strange things that i was doing until he experienced more and um it 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 got it got better and better for him after that. And Mark was one of the guys that was so much fun to work with because he didn't he 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 had a great mind, as as, as people know. Um and his great mind was um uh was able to comprehend the um the philosophical stuff that is very much a big part of my my um my approach. And uh, we're we're still in touch today. I uh, we you know we we talked the other day, and um, Mark's now playing guitar. So, I... 
but you've got lots to talk we'll come back to the music piece but I, but I agree with what I mean what you say about Mark is so Mark was the person that introduced on this uh, me on this podcast to the AI coaching platform that is Tridot that he now uses mm-hmm. and you know for somebody that's been in the sport I mean it's ironic given that he there's there's been a debate there's been a bit of a bit of banter on um, social media between him and Tim Don about whether Mark's sort of over the you know um over the what I can't remember what the term is but you know whether he's kind of passed it and yet ironically he's dealing with the 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 most futuristic training plan designer that there is on the market I think um yeah and so he's obviously very open to this sort of stuff is there is there any other athletes that you can really single out as people that you've worked with that have seen such a marked success or that you just kind of most enjoyed working with um gosh um a, a, a lot of them um in in motorsports in in um uh cycling in, I, I mean yes um uh and i i just you know mark's the one people attach me to because um he he would, you know, he's got the six Ironman races, which is only the tip of the iceberg. People don't realize how incredible an athlete he he was from a competitive standpoint. All those Nice wins, and yeah. he won. I think he won twenty professional races in in a row. And we we talked about this. You know, he was never going to jump into a a low key race just to make some money. Uh, they were all competitive events, and and when he got into the sport. It was the, it was the beginning of the competitiveness in that sport because a lot of cyclists were saying, "Hey, I'm a great cyclist. I could really wipe up everybody on the bike and hold on." And you know, and um, <clears throat> so there was a lot of competition, and you know, but yeah, all, all, all the sports. I, I got to the point somewhere along the way by probably by by the early '90s where I I decided, and it was very busy, and I. I sort of was getting a little burnt out and I I decided I, I've got to cut back and there are certain people on on who come to me for help and I'm I'm not gonna take take on them as a as an athlete because they it's sort of like I, I want to work with somebody who's really interested in in doing it right. You know, not try to make a splash. Mm-hmm. And and I would often joke, and it's not really a joke. If you want to be, if you want to have a great race, overtrain and do it, you know, by the calendar so that you're you're starting to overtrain right at the time you're gonna race, and you'll probably run your best, but you'll be retiring after that. Um and and that's what people wanted to do. How could I I gotta I've gotta do well in this race? I'll do anything to to you know. Well, there have been movies written about that. I'm willing to sacrifice my soul for a little more speed, and that's what that's what people do. And I'm not willing to work with those with those athletes. Or, or I've worked with a lot of other people, CEOs and politicians, and don't. But well, it certainly it certainly <laughs> must have been an absolutely incredible career. Um, for the, I mean, you're probably best known for the math method aren't you um for those people that are listening to this that don't understand anything about can you give us a kind of summary of what what that that methodology is all about sure maf stands for maximum aerobic function um and 
it's a way of of uh, developing the body's health and fitness, which are really one thing. Uh, health, of course, is where all the systems of the body, the muscle system, the hormones, the digestive system, the brain and nervous system, they're all working in some kind of balance, some kind of harmony. And fitness is the ability to to perform, to physically perform in particular, uh, and especially in sports. And so the fittest athlete typically will win the race on that day. Um, but we need both health and fitness. And if we don't have it, uh, we we get into a situation which is very common, was very common, and is still very common today, where athletes become uh, more and more fit, but less and less healthy. And we see it uh, when there's an injury. We see it in people who become exhausted and overtrained. We see it, in, uh, unfortunately, in athletes who die at at young ages. And in, in triathlon, we've seen that way too many times in in, in marathon running and um, in, in all the sports. Um, and that's a, that's an extreme example of someone who's very fit but unhealthy because you don't die at age 40 or 50 uh, if you're not unhealthy. And so, so that's what the approach is. That's the, yeah. the sort of the philosophy of it. And all the the details are all in there to uh, encourage that balance of health and fitness. And for an athlete, the goal is to perform your your personal best and continue year after year after year. Um, and retire at your own, uh, you know, when 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 you 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 don't want to do it anymore, not because you're so burned out. And within that system, sorry, go on, Clay. You've got a question. No, I was, I was going to ask whether with where where you started, you know, you talked about seeing athletes maybe that were injured and then that sort of developed. Did did your um, system? I'm calling it a system. Maybe it's a framework. Um, was that developed because because of all the different things that you were doing? So in terms of seeing athletes maybe that were injured but wanting to perform better, is that how your framework or the way that you work with athletes developed, how the math principle developed? I think so. I, I think you're right. It it's it's it just again, it just sort of happened and and I had um way back as a student this all these different ideas, which, you know, makes you crazy. And, but and then suddenly you realize that they're all one big thing. It's, it's a holistic concept. Mm-hmm. So they're not all separate entities. And so um, I wanted to practice nutrition and back, you know, in the seventies, um, that was a, a really a new thing. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do biofeedback and that was that just wasn't done uh, much. It was done by NASA, and it was a new field of of endeavor to measure the brain, the brain waves, and then get muscles responding to the brain, all that kind of stuff. And and again, it was um, it was all together. And and the 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 difficult part was answered by the assessment process, whereby you spend a lot of time talking to the athlete. I want to know about the athlete. I want to know exactly what they're thinking, exactly what they're eating, exactly their attitude about training and racing. And um, I want to I want to understand them really well. And then I could say, well, 
okay, here's what I think we need to do this, that, and that, because you're an individual athlete, you're unique from everyone else I've ever worked with. And I want to individualize this approach for, for you. And we can measure along the way to make sure we're, we're on the right page to make sure we're doing the right things. And mm -hmm. if it doesn't work, then we sort of go back and reassess and figure out where we might've gone wrong. But it, yeah, it, 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 it just, you know, there, there's a lot of logic to it. So it just came together um, logically. And there's a philosophy, which is quite a logical thing that is all kind of tied in there. And, and one of the most famous parts of your methodology is all relating to heart rate, isn't it? And the balance between aerobic and anaerobic training. Can you explain why, uh, you know, and I know when you've, first written about this you know that would have been quite some time ago what do you think the current you know is there any what, what would your current advice be to triathletes training around or anyone runners swimmers cyclists um around that balance between aerobic and, and anaerobic and and how should they look at that nowadays uh, the same way as they as i looked at it you know decades ago um i've 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 fine-tuned and tweaked my approach uh, year by year from the beginning uh, and will continue doing that. And that's based on, that was based a lot on my experience and it's also based on research, some of which I've done. Um, but the aerobic system was, for me, was was a big, big part of it all because when I studied exercise physiology, um, the aerobic system was sort of an aside nobody ever talked about that there was still uh in sports back back then in the 70s uh, a macho-ness if i could make up that term um there was a macho-ness about sports and exercise physiology attracted a lot of macho uh uh approaches in in terms of you know everything's going to be hard you've got to get strong you've got to be fast um and and then there was this aerobic system way over there somewhere that uh they would kind of casually mention in class oh yeah there's this aerobic system that you know does this that and that and i'm thinking well well wait a minute that's very important for health and initially when i started delving into what the aerobic system does and how do we develop it i thought it was it, it was going to be my health program separate from sports and then i realized that this is this is our endurance system this is how we burn fat for energy and prevent us from accumulating body fat and how we get unlimited energy and how we get more and more endurance and how we can get aerobic the, i coined this phrase aerobic speed the more we build our aerobic system the faster we get as as an endurance athlete and the the aerobic system was important for for power athletes as well for track and field athletes because those aerobic system those so the aerobic system is the metabolic part where we burn fat and also the physical part where there are aerobic muscle fibers and in a chicken just to give people some background in a chicken there's light meat and dark meat the light meat is the anaerobic white fiber. The dark meat is the aerobic fibers. Well, in the human, those muscle fibers are are mixed in the muscle. 
So what what aerobic muscles do for uh, for everybody, but power athletes in particular, is they support the 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 muscles that are next door. So there's an anaerobic muscle next to the aerobic fiber, and the aerobic uh, muscle has a lot of blood supply and a lot of oxygen and the anaerobic fiber doesn't, so it shares some of that. And it's a great, plus the aerobic muscle fibers support our joints all day long. And so if we don't have good support, we we risk getting injured, uh, even with normal training, if the aerobic system isn't working well. And so how can an athlete improve their aerobic system? Well, as it as it is with the aerobic system, uh, it develops with easy activity, it, it, with with easy physical activity, and it develops when we encourage uh, f- a better fat burning uh, metabolism. And so the diet—that's where the diet really comes in. And if we train uh, that, if we if we train at a higher intensity, we're going to enlist more anaerobic uh, muscle fibers and more anaerobic metabolism. So. The game is to train at a level that encourages the aerobic muscles to develop and encourages uh, more fat burning and less sugar burning. And that's where the heart monitor and, and, and um, uh, the, the, heart, um, the heart rate uh, as a guide comes in. And the heart, all, all the heart related things that I did in the beginning was all based on biofeedback. It, it was a biofeedback, one of the many biofeedback techniques I used. And I originally thought actually that, um, and this was before wireless heart monitors even came out. Um, I used a, a, an old fashioned <clears throat> um, hospital heart monitor they used for cardiac patients. Um, and I had one of them in my office and I would use it on the athletes who would come in and we'd go to the track and I'd have, I'd put it on them and I'd run with them typically, or I'd watch them analyze their gait and I'd, I'd ask them what their heart rate, heart rate was. And I'd, I'd compare heart rate with gait and then heart rate with their breathing, all kinds of things. That's, that's classic biofeedback. Um, and so you know, it was one of the one of the many tools I used the 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 heart rate. And specifically for somebody getting into the world of endurance sport, what would you tell them in terms of, you know, what how how would they how should what what should they be look, looking at in their heart rate, and also how often should they be training aerobically versus anaerobically? Yeah, I, I would. You know, we live in a society that's um, very unhealthy. We live in a no pain, no gain society where more is better and uh, faster is better, and we want to we want to get stronger right away. We want to get faster right away. Um, no pain, no gain is 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 really a, a way to to kill yourself sometimes. And so, how do we how do we get out of that attitude? Well, one of the ways is through biofeedback, and one of the ways we could use biofeedback is monitoring the heart rate during exercise. So if you really want to know the status of your aerobic system, get a heart monitor, figure out your aerobic level of training, which we could talk about in a minute. There's a simple formula that could get you started. And 
<clears throat> and go out for your normal run. And but don't exceed that aerobic heart rate, that MAF heart rate. And many people uh, get depressed when they do that because because they have to run so slow. Or walk, as I did the first time I tried it. Or walk. (laughs) Uh, Mark Mark Allen had to walk the hills when he, you know. I I remember with Mark, we were running around the track at the University of San Diego on their track, and we're running, and he's got this old, you know, cardiac heart monitor on. And I said, okay, you're going to be running at this heart rate. I don't, it doesn't matter what your pace is. It, what matters is the heart rate. You don't want to exceed that. And I can hear the beep. So I kind of know where your heart rate is. And if I ask you what it is, just look down, you'll see the, the number on the little window there. And, and so we're, we're, we're literally jogging, uh, at an 820 or 830 pace. And, and he's just looking like, what is this all about? I said, well, this is the status of your aerobic system. This is this is where you should start training. And he said, well, it's two minutes a mile fast, uh, slower than I normally train. I said, well, that's why you're having trouble. Um, and so he wanted to use the monitor that evening for a run where he lived, which was a little hilly. And he had to walk uh, the, the hills because... Not an unusual thing in in every sport, beginners and advanced, and you know, rarely do we see people who have trained right and are running at the correct pace. I've seen that a couple of times, not very often. Greta White's was the the best. She, you know, I put a heart monitor on her and I explained what we're going to do, and I said, "Well, let's start with your usual pace. Let's see how different that is." And it was it was exactly right on. She was so intuitive in her in her training but that's that that's a rarity in this society that's a that's a rarity so uh that'll tell you where your aerobic system is and and if it's uh painfully slow it means you've got a terrible aerobic system and you need to build that up to be healthier to get your health and fitness more balanced uh exclusively without doing any fast training because the aerobic system is very sensitive if we try to do muscle building, uh, weightlifting, or if we try to do our track workouts, the aerobic system may not develop very well. So how often in the beginning, so if you were starting out, um, how many weeks are you looking at? I mean, do you do it on weeks or is it in response to what your heart rate does? How long would you be doing the aerobic work without bringing any anaerobic work in? Um, um forgive me if i'm wrong but you said also strength and conditioning so not to do that as well so how what what kind of time period are we looking yeah, at yeah not to do uh fatiguing strength workouts okay. we can come back to what strength really is but it's not mm-hmm. bulking up because that doesn't necessarily strengthen you so mm-hmm. um yes no 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 traditional weightlifting no anaerobic no no competition for a period of time to allow your aerobic system to build how long that period is depends on how bad your aerobic system is and how quickly you can build it up. And a lot of that depends on your diet and um, and stress in general. And we can talk about stress because all of this that we're talking about is stress. When your aerobic system is poorly functioning, that's a big stress for the body. So 
for for many people, it could take three months to build the aerobic system. Sometimes it takes four months. If you've overtrained and you're really burnt out, it could take six months. Um, but the key is that during those weeks and months, you get faster and faster at the same aerobic heart rate. And and what happens over time, and a lot of athletes have have <laughs> have done this to me. They complain how slow they have to run. I can't do this. They call me like in the middle of the night. Are you sure this? It's like, yes, we're sure. Um, and and then as the months go by, they they say, hey, I can't go this fast. I'm going too fast now. So that's the game is you want to let your aerobic system build up and develop a good solid base before you add some of the stress workouts the track workouts the the competition the 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 weight training the 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 you know um that kind of stuff and that's a that's essential and then you can combine them and then after your racing season you go back to this period of strictly aerobic training which would be your off season generally uh and then you 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 develop a, a cycle based on Depending for a competitive, for a, a professional athlete, we can usually, we know the races, we know the calendar, and we can plan that. For for an amateur athlete, uh, unfortunately, there are races all year long. So you, you need to make your own schedule, which is nice because you can, you can plan better. You could build your aerobic system without worrying about, you know, the world championships or the Olympics or whatever. And um, kind of do it your way. And, and specifically, what number? So somebody's just bought their first heart rate monitor, um, and they're going out to try and build up their endurance. What specifically? How do you, how do you do the calculations around the numbers so you know what you should be targeting? Well, I used to do that m manually myself. I, I would evaluate the athlete in my office. Then we'd go to the track or we'd be on the road on a bike or depending on their sport. Um, and then I, I, I would evaluate them uh, with a heart monitor on. I could see their gait gets a little worse if their heart rate's a little higher. So then we back it up and then we come up with, okay, I think your, your uh, aerobic heart rate is 142. And so feel what it's like to to run around the track at a 142 heart rate and that's how I want you to train and then when the when the wireless heart monitors came out everybody got them it made it much easier um but but uh I was I was asked about you know how how could I do this at a lecture somebody asked me the question how could I figure out my own heart rate and I didn't have an answer and I was a little embarrassed so I went back uh and and started figuring out how there's got to be a formula you know i knew about the 220 formula which i used in the very beginning and it was a disaster um and so what i developed is something called the 180 formula and the 180 formula allows an individual to individualize the process so they consider their health and all these health factors they consider their fitness and fit fitness factors and um you you it's all over the internet people can look up the 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 180 formula and plug themselves into it and they'll come up with that 142 heart rate 
It's it's really yeah. quite uh, simple. That simple. Okay. And then <clears throat> then the question is, do we know for sure that it's one forty two? Should it be one forty four, one forty six, or should it be one thirty eight? And the bottom line is, if you don't get faster and faster at one forty two, something is wrong. And and it could be the diet, but it, it often is that you're uh, you picked too high a number. You basically mm. you weren't honest in your evaluation. <laughs> it, and you I know, can't imagine. It says in one spot. It says if, if you're if you have excess body fat, subtract an additional five. And nobody wants to admit they have excess body fat, so they're not going to. So you know, it's. A, I had a I had a guy who said to me, "Yeah, I think you're right. I, I'm using too high a number." I thought, be you know, this is like a 45 year old guy. He said, "I thought because I was a track runner in high school that I wouldn't have to subtract an extra, you know, whatever." Um, so we have all these, you know, these rationales for why we we should be running faster. That doesn't sound like a triathlete at all. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did how did you come up with the formula itself? Because you talked about obviously the the two twenty um, formula. How did you come up with those questions and relate it to heart rate and what that should be? Well, the questions were. That was what I was going through in my mind when I was working with individual athletes. Mm-hmm. Oh, this person has uh, a history of getting injured a lot. And then what I would find out from going to the track is that, oh, well, they're going to need a lower heart rate. And it was really just putting it all together. And then I didn't have, I didn't yet have, you know, where do we start? Uh, where would a, would an athlete start? And it just, it just, the the 180 came to me one day and it was like, hey, stupid, just 180 minus the age, that'll get started. And I plugged in the numbers and then I went back and looked at athletes that I had uh, calculated by, you know, the clinical approach, which took a couple of hours or more um, until they all, it all correlated. And I tweaked it a little bit over the years, you know, back back in the early 80s, we didn't have a lot of athletes with excess body fat. Uh, the 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 overfat pandemic was just starting to explode at that point. Um, and it hadn't really hit the athletic community until probably the mid 80s. You started seeing um, uh, athletes who were accumulating body fat because of what they ate. Um, but but so I would tweak it. I added the overfat um, factor. I added um, uh, <clears throat> chronic overtraining versus acute overtraining. Uh, I added some things to the 220 formula or the 180 formula um, uh, that make it more complete today than it was, you know, even even in the 90s. Brilliant. And you mentioned you've mentioned overtraining a few times. How do how does an athlete identify? when they're overtraining what does i what does overtraining look like how does it manifest well in order to answer that we need to ask about stress what is stress overtraining is a stress syndrome well what is stress stress can be physical it can be biochemical like a metabolic problem and it can be mental emotional so overtraining is whenever we have a physical problem a biochemical problem or a mental emotional problem that creeps into the picture 
uh, during training, and those would be abnormal things. A knee injury would be a classic uh, overtraining symptom. Um, uh, building excess body fat would be a classic biochemical uh, symptom or sign. Uh, and people think, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just train more because if I train more, I'll burn, I'll burn more calories. Well, that's the 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 myth of the calorie, uh, the the calories in, calories out equation. Um, that's not what it's about. When people say, "Well, I burn more calories," I ask, "Calories of what?" And now they're confused because we have fat calories we burn and we have sugar calories we burn. And if we don't burn a lot of fat calories, they go into storage, and our aerobic system suffers as a result. So. Um, so that's a biochemical example of, of overtraining and mental, emotional, uh, stress, uh, depression, anxiety, uh, loss of interest in competing, loss of interest in training. Um, these are, I mean, that's an epidemic in all sports. Very, very common problem. You literally change the, the neurotransmitters in the brain when you overtrain and so but but what what is even easier well what's just as easy to to observe is that you stop getting faster at the same heart rate during your aerobic training and you stop you stop competing as well your your 10k times get worse your uh your standings your age group standings um in a triathlon, which is the best indicator, um, you know, start to go, you start going down the list, uh, especially at the end uh, of a triathlon, your, your, your run performance, uh, tends to get worse because with overtraining, our endurance diminishes. And so by the time we get to the end of the race, we perform less effectively. Um, and th those are, those are, Overtraining is a it's it's you know I I would say um, seventy easily seventy percent of athletes across the board are overtrained, and we can have early overtraining where it's not noticeable. Um, in fact, uh, if if you if you do a race and you you suddenly burst out of nowhere to have a wildly great performance. That's a sign of overtraining because your sympathetic system is wound up. You're pushing yourself so much in training. Now you get to your race. You're like, it's like being jacked up on caffeine. You're, you're crazy and you're stronger for the moment, but then you collapse after that. And if you happen to have a, a good race there, you're going to perform really well. And a lot of, you see it, uh, a lot of athletes, you know, have these great races great performances, whether it's tennis or whatever sport you're in, it's the same pattern. They do really well because they're hitting this peak, but they're going to crash after that. And so they get injured, they get they get uh, depressed, they get exhausted, and often are never heard from again. It's, it's really quite sad. And with your, with your um, system and the way that you work, um, are you suggesting that um by by 
um, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, by doing more of the low aerobic work, I mean, low heart rate aerobic work, that you'd be less likely to overtrain? Is that because you're doing less anaerobic work? When Yes, that's that's true. But when you build a good aerobic base, your foundation, you're less likely to overtrain when you go back to your track workouts and, and competition. Unless you overdo the competition, then you keep suppressing your aerobic system. Um, in endurance sports, in, in, in the endurance world, we rely on our aerobic systems. We don't rely very much on our anaerobic. How often do you get on your toes in a triathlon and sprint? You think you're doing it in the last, you know, uh, mile or so, but you're kidding yourself. You're not really sprinting. You're just running as fast as you could. Um, some people can sprint. Sprinter, former sprinters can sprint at the end of a triathlon. Uh, they look cool and they like to do it. Um, uh, but, but, uh, nine, you know, 95% of our effort in a triathlon is aerobic. If you look at the, the, um, you know, the VO2 max, uh, performance relationships, the associations with triathlons, they're not very high, 75, 80% of VO2 max. So it's our aerobic system. And in fact, I've worked with a lot of athletes who only build their aerobic system for that period of base building for maybe four, five, six months. And then I I really often encourage them to jump into a race. And they would say the same thing. How could I race? I haven't done my track work. How am I going to know? How far? Blah, blah. The brain knows what it's doing. You just leave things alone. Let your brain turn on and take you through the race. And a lot of them run personal bests. I've seen it in 5Ks, 10Ks, marathons. I've seen incredible performances in a triathlon. Mike Pig was that way. He would spend uh, months and months doing aerobic training, and then he would go um, and perform really well. In fact, the first time I worked with Mike, uh, he he was he was pretty burned out. And I think we did six months or, or maybe more of aerobic training. And he was supposed to go to this big race. And he said, I, I can't go. I haven't done anything, but you know, this easy training. I said, well, it's not easy because you've been getting faster and faster. Uh, you, you know, you took two minutes off your per mile off your runtime. You took a massive amount of speed on your on your bike now uh at the same heart rate blob and you know so you know he had to be convinced to go and it was the first time mark allen was second in in 20 races that was that was the the that was the string of wins mark lost and mike was the winner uh from that from that uh from that uh, aerobic training only uh buildup of six or seven months. So some people like being on the track. Some people hate it. If you hate being on the track, don't ever go near it. Don't even look at it. You know, we have this problem in endurance sports where way back during the running boom, it started where a lot of coaches from track and field had opportunities to train these endurance athletes with all these 
there were a lot of athletes, especially professionals in, in, in the marathon. And these track and field coaches came over and they brought with them their work ethic, which was interval training. And so interval training became a major, I mean, people do intervals all year round. It's insane. And you've you've mentioned um, uh, overfat the overfat uh, pandemic. I think you described it as, or maybe I've heard you say that um, elsewhere. Um, how, what do you think the role of good nutrition is in the um, in the life of a triathlete? I know Claire and I have spoken about this before, and often you know people are far more keen to spend money on a new bike um, or something. You know just throw money at the problem, but not put that same amount of effort into their nutrition. What are your, what are your thoughts on the importance of nutrition for, for a successful athlete? Well, I, as, as I knew early on, uh, the diet, our ancestors, our earliest ancestors ate is the best human diet as research is showing some of which I've done, uh, uh, diet is more important than the training part because the diet dictates how you're going to metabolize your energy during training. So if your diet says, let's burn more fat, you're going to develop your aerobic system much quicker, much easier, and have more endurance and get faster and faster at the same heart rate, even though you haven't trained fast yet um, because of your diet. If you don't have a good diet, even if you're doing all the right things in training, it really isn't going to take you very far because uh, you, you don't become a fat burner and you require that fat burning mechanism to, to get you through a race, to get your aerobic system building and becoming uh, become more efficient. So the diet is, uh, is really more important than the, than the training and certainly more important than your bike. Um, uh, and in particular, the dietary component that's most devastating to, to endurance athletes is the same devastating ingredient as, uh, everybody else in every other human, uh, and that's refined carbohydrates. So sugar, uh, processed, uh, grains, which is virtually all grains, um, in the marketplace today, um, and and that has been the most common cuisine in in sports nutrition. The the so you have to think where the where did that idea come from? Uh, well, as you're growing up, as the running boom is booming, as triathlons are born, uh, as as athletes start reading uh, the the related magazines to find out. You know, what do I do? I've never done a triathlon. I've never heard of it. Uh, and now there's a, a, a magazine, triathlon magazine. Oh, let me see what, what they're recommending to eat. Well, they're recommending you eat junk food. Oh, and by the way, there's a lot of junk food advertisement in the magazine. So this, and in running, it's it was even worse. Um, to the point where athletes would come to me and I tell them they have to stop eating junk food and, and they just, they, they, they couldn't understand that. And it was a hard, it was really a hard sell. Um, 
So that's that's the bottom line with nutrition. Get rid of the junk food. And if it's 80% of your diet, um, you don't just wipe out 80% of your diet. You get rid of the junk food, however much it is in your diet, and you add back the healthy foods. You add back uh, more of uh, the vegetables, more of the fruits, more of the um, the protein sources, um, eggs and cheese and meats and um, uh, and fats. You know, humans humans had a higher fat, moderate protein, very low carbohydrate diet for millions of years. And it wasn't until the agricultural revolution uh, uh, and and really the, um, the, me- the mechanical ability to take the, the things that were grown and turn it into processed food, which is only a few thousand years old, uh, when that became the, the, the human diet, sugar in particular, now, have you, I'm guessing that you've got some follow-up thoughts or questions on this, because I know this is a subject that comes up on the podcast. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's interesting, isn't it, where um, sports nutrition has gone over the years. And, I mean, what are your thoughts? You've obviously worked with lots and lots of athletes, and you, you talked right at the beginning about um, – I think – I can't remember what you said, actually, right at the beginning – but about an athlete being an individual. And – with you know when you look at things like diet what are your thoughts on an individualized approach because as an athlete we have different needs and obviously with different lifestyle pools and things like that um there's a lot of things aren't there in the media about what we should and shouldn't eat lots of new research so how how do you work individually with an athlete because for some athletes that's a huge change away from their current thinking away from maybe their family's way of eating um, so how do you work with an, with an individual in terms of changing nutrition as, as yeah. part of all those pieces? Uh, it, it's a good question. It's an important question. Um, <clears throat> um, the first thing you do is you remove unnatural things from somebody's diet because there's no, and there's a scientific consensus. There's a clinical consensus about n- never eating junk food. Um, and if somebody, if a scientist says, well, I think junk food is okay, guaranteed he or she is working in the industry. <clears throat> so we have to get rid of information that comes from the industry, which we're bombarded with every day by the media. Articles are planted in the media. The media gets advertising from junk food companies. Um, I mean, when was the last time you saw an ad in a running magazine for eggs? You know, it, it just doesn't happen. So we get rid of the unnatural stuff first. So that's the junk food. Um, r- refined uh, refined foods, sugar, uh, you get rid of it. And then uh, you start adding things back that you um, are attracted to, not emotionally or uh, that you're not emotionally unattracted to. Um, you know, don't tell me you're you're. You you can't eat red meat, but white meat is okay. Well, what's the difference? Isn't that like when you're a kid, you you can't eat a sandwich unless your mother cuts off the crust? And you know, of course, that offends people. And I mean, sometimes you have to make a really strong point. Um, this is this is your health. 
And do you want, do you really want to become the best athlete you could be and continue doing that until as long as you want? If you want to be in the 100 to 109 age group when you get there, why, why, why couldn't you be? And the diet plays such a, a big role. So we, we, we first get rid of the junk food and then we start adding things in and we, we monitor. I encourage the, the athlete to monitor their eating with signs and symptoms they may get. Are they tired after a meal? That's a classic carbohydrate problem. Uh, do they have energy at the end of the day? Um, do they, uh, do they, uh, d- does their uh, pace at the end of an hour run go way, way down because they, they don't quite have enough energy to maintain a good pace. Your pace would normally come down a little bit because of normal aerobic muscle fatigue. But if if fat burning is not really great, um, but it's good enough to slowly build your aerobic system, but an hour into a run, you slow way down, that could indicate you're not eating uh, enough, enough fat. Um, uh muscle soreness strength is a great example um endurance athletes tend to be weak and if you're weak it's easy to measure you can measure it with a hand grip which reflects full body strength or you can measure it with a um a standing jump measuring the height of your jump which a lot of gyms uh, i see are are doing because there's some really cool equipment that does it automatically, a mat with a sensor and stuff. Um, runners in particular are a breed of, of athletes who are so weak, especially when, when you, you, you get out of your uh, early 20s and you, you hit 30 and now your 5Ks, you know, you, you got too much competition, so you move up to 10K. Now those athletes, they don't, they start losing strength. And by 30 and 40, um, athletes often are weak. And so if you're weak, your protein needs are often uh, too low. So we need to get more protein into the diet. And, you know, the the human brain, every animal, every wild animal on earth knows how to eat except for humans. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm pretty wild. Um, I'm pretty sensitive to what I'm eating. I'm pretty intuitive about what I want. Um, and people should learn that instinct, that intuition. And, you know, we should be able to sit down to a meal. And and when we've had enough, we stop eating, not when our plate is empty, that kind of thing. So that's yeah. all, as you say, Claire, the individualization process. Mm-hmm. And so the athletes I work with and the ones who respond the best are the ones who do this on their own. And Mark Allen was a great example. He would he would do it and figure out how to do it. And, you know, over the years, uh, you know, I'd hear him say, yeah, I, I can't do this anymore like I used to. So I've modified it by doing that. Perfect. Mm. I keep changing my my, um, you know, my lifestyle habits not dr- dramatically anymore, but uh, year by year, because as we age, our needs change and we have to, we have to keep up with them. Mm-hmm. And where does, um, where does the strength and conditioning part sit here? Because you, obviously we're losing, although we can build muscle, we're losing 
muscle mass after the age of 30, I believe. Um, and you were mentioning there about, you know, athletes are weak. So where do where are your thoughts in terms of strength and conditioning within your programs sit in relation to weakness in athletes? Yeah. <clears throat> that's uh that's very important. Um, we have, uh, and I would call it a pandemic by definition. We have a strength, we have a weakness pandemic in the world today. Uh, the 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 number of people who are weak by measurement um, is is unbelievably high, and in athletes, uh, in particular, in in endurance athletes, it's unbelievably high. And um, and with aging, it's even worse. And weakness is a um, a very unhealthy sign. Um, and I, I would recommend that people have their strength measured. Don't think that you know if you can pick up a certain amount of weight, you're strong, because that's deceptive. Uh, go somewhere that has a um, a, a hand grip. A a, a a a dynamo. A, a, it's a hand grip yeah. device, and you grip it, and it measures the pounds you can grip. That's a standard way of measuring full body strength. <clears throat> and I'm amazed that that people uh, often can't. Uh, I'm amazed at people half my age that 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 can't, you know, can't grip anywhere near as as much as I can because I I I I do strength uh exercises pretty regularly. So there's two kinds of strength exercises. There's building muscle bulk and muscle bulk doesn't mean strength. Just because we have a lot of muscle doesn't mean we're strong. Look at the look at the bodybuilders. They have this incredible bulk and they're incredibly weak. Look at, um, well, look at Olympic weightlifters, competitive lifters. They're relatively lean and they're incredibly strong. They don't want to build bulk because it'll push them up into the next weight category where people tend to be stronger and they want to be in a lower category where they're more competitive. So they get strong in different ways rather than bulking up. And bulking up involves getting fatigued. Bulking up it, it involves lifting a weight until the muscle fatigues. And you, come on, you could do one more, one more. Okay, okay. That's the traditional weightlifting model that is just devastating on the body. If you want to look cool, find other ways to do it. You know, buy, buy some new clothes, get somebody to... I, I, it, it's about health and strength is an important part of health. The other option in getting strong is to lift in a way where you don't fatigue the muscles. How do we do that? Well, in short, and I have a whole book about that. Uh, but in short, you're gonna um, you're gonna uh, figure out what your maximum uh, and an athlete can do this. If you're a beginner, I, I recommend getting help. But an athlete can figure out about how much weight can they lift one time how if there's a barbell on the floor how much weight can you lift and just barely get it up to you one time before you 
it's too much for you. Now take 80% of that, and you should be able to, to do six of those lifts without getting fatigued. So by not getting fatigued, you don't get muscle soreness. The next morning, you're not sore. And you've already recovered from one night's sleep. With bulking type fatigue exercise, you get sore during and after the workout. You're sore the next morning. It takes you two to three days to recover. And during that three-day window, I call it the weakness window, your muscles are actually weak because you fatigue them. Fatigue equals weakness. And during that weakness window, we shouldn't do any exercise. So if you're an endurance athlete and you lift twice a week, you, you can't do anything else. Obviously, that's not going to work. So lifting without fatiguing, and you can do that. I, I have a I have a you know a, a barbell um uh that I that's 80% of my max. I will lift it up, I'll do six um half squats. You don't need to do a full squat. You know, that's a macho thing. We can get just as much benefit from a half squat as a full squat. So I can I lift that up to my chest. I do six half squats and I put it down. And then I'll I'll get on my computer and start writing an article or something. I'll 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 get a phone call. I'll um whatever. Uh and then <clears throat> as I'm walking past the weight, I'll stop and I'll pick it up and do six squats, put it down. Maybe I do five, six, seven, ten of those a day. Maybe I don't do any. But at the end of the week and at the end of the month, I've done a lot of strength training. And I haven't fatigued my muscles, so I haven't interfered with my aerobic system. And that's what uh, safe strength training is is all about. Brilliant. That's really interesting. Um, now I want to I want to I want to zag off in a different direction. Now I know your latest book is called B Sharp and is more about music than exercise. So explain what that's all about and how that fits into the world of endurance sport as well. Well, it's about music and movement. So music and exercise, music and sports. Uh, we've had music in our head from the beginning. First humans had music. That's how we communicated. That's how we developed ourselves. That's how we grew our brain into this amazing uh, thing, uh, into a super species, really. Um, music and movement are are one. You can't listen to music, whether it's physically on on you know coming out of your speakers or your earbuds, or if it's in your mind and you're thinking about something. You can't listen to music and not move. Your motor cortex, your your cerebellum, and your motor cortex are when when music is played are sending messages to your muscles to start contracting. So. Um, uh, music obviously plays an important role in sports, and there's two ways it, it does that. One is music is is a very powerful health promoter. 
So if we can promote our health, if we can get healthier, we're going to be a better athlete because we're going to maintain that balance of health and fitness. And in sports, we have this idea that uh, if we listen to music when we work out, we're going to work out better. And that's completely wrong. In fact, uh, what the research shows, people say, oh, no, the research shows that it helps us. No, what the research shows is that when we're listening to music and working out, it allows us to push ourselves harder. It allows us to go faster. It allows us to be um, to, to get us out of bed in the morning because we know we're going to go to the gym. We're going to hear music. And, you know, it's um, but I, I've always encouraged athletes to not listen to music during exercise, but to listen to their body because the brain knows what it's doing. Let your brain do the work and learn about what the body's doing because the body's always sending messages back into the brain. And now you could evaluate yourself much better. So, and in, in all sports, we, we see this. Um, uh, there may be music playing, um, but a lot of athletes tune it out. There may be music that the athlete wanted to hear, but then as soon as the competitive component of whatever it is they're doing begins, um, they're they're doing it without music and you see that in 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 diving and in baseball and um so i i like i like athletes to listen to their body but i like athletes especially to use music to relax because you've got that stress factor that physical biochemical mental emotional stress factor that is really what's going to hold you back from reaching your athletic potential. And so if we can spend five minutes listening to one of our favorite songs, lying on the couch, closing our eyes and relaxing, we're going to reduce stress in a significant way. And if we if we incorporate music in our lives um, that we want, not music that the industry wants us to hear, which is the big scam today in the last 30 years, really, um we're going to benefit from uh you know our nervous system's going to benefit our muscles are going to benefit uh and we'll be better athletes the other important thing um if 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 we took a hundred athletes in any sport a hundred triathletes and we put them in a room and we and we had a metronome clicking off the beats and we said okay we want everyone to to walk in place to the beat. Hit your foot right on the beat. Half of them wouldn't be able to do it. They might not be able to do it right away. Some of them will be able to do it for a minute or so and then get off course. And if you can't be rhythmic in your movements as an athlete, you're, you're terribly inefficient. Your gait is irregular. You're, in fact, your gait is so irregular that in the course of, say, an hour training run or an hour racing, that irregular gait is going to cost you a lot of time. You're going to waste away a lot of energy, which is what costs you the time. And you're going to be vulnerable because your, your irregular gait means the joints are moving in an, in an improper way. You're going to be vulnerable for 
injuries. And the and in the book I talk about this, the therapy, if if that's and it's an easy thing to test. We we could all have a, a free app uh that gives us a metronome on our phones. Test yourself. Turn on the 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 metronome to say 80 beats a minute and see if you can walk in place to the beats. Okay, now bring it up to 90 and start walking around the house. Bring it to 100, 110. Take it on your run. Can you run to the beat, right on the beat? A lot of athletes cannot. And that becomes a very, very important therapy. That's that's classic biofeedback. Um, that will make you a better athlete. And it, really it, it, it may only take a, a week or two in difficult cases. It could take a month or more. But once you've once you've made the connection between the brain and the muscles, you're now a, a better athlete. By the way, I meant to say, Claire, that with the weightlifting thing, the difference between someone with big muscles and someone with lean muscles, thinner, more leaner muscles, is how can a lean person be stronger than a bulky person? Well, all that happens is the brain enlists more muscle fibers in a lean muscle. And we all know lean people who are very strong, stronger than big bulky people. We've all heard the, the I don't know if it's true or not, but the woman whose kid gets caught under the car and the woman lifts the car. Well, she's enlisting more muscle fibers because of stress. Mm. Anyway, so... Uh, uh, that that's another. There's there's a, a lot of things in the book that um, athletes will benefit from, um, especially if we're concerned about our brain. Uh, and our brain is capable of, unlike our body, getting better and better and better as the years go by. Our brain can fix itself. We can grow new brain cells. Uh, we don't have to lose memory. We don't, you know, we should have the best brain on the day we die. Mm. And that's that's what the book is about. Brilliant. Well, I think it's a really interesting subject. As somebody I, I raced um yesterday and on the third lap of the of the bike course, I was actually I think I was probably singing out loud. I was definitely singing in my head at times, try and get me over, get get me through the line. So I, I'm really fascinated by that. Um, now, one of the one of the things that we do on this podcast is we get the previous guest to ask the next guest a question without knowing who that is. So our previous guest was Blaise Dubois, who um, is a, a Canadian um, guy who helps runners avoid injury. So I think, Claire, have you got Blaze's question? Mm. Yeah. So Blaze's question to you is, what shoes do you train in and why? Uh, good, good question. Shoes have been a, a, a dilemma since um, since they 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 got away from flat shoes. I want to say the early '80s. I remember running the well, that was 1980. I remember running the New York City Marathon, and I was wondering should I wear this training shoe, which was very flat, or should I wear this racing flat, which is what I would have worn for a 5K. Being a sprinter, I like getting up on my toes. And, and so by the early 80s, they were starting to make thicker and thicker shoes. 
Um, and I started seeing more injuries as a result of shoes. And so I've been campaigning and, and the, the companies that make the shoes are, are giving us bad information about what we should have on our feet. The best thing to have on our feet is nothing. And I often have nothing. If I'm on the beach where the sand is, where it's relatively flat and hard, um, or if I'm in a in an area that's safe to run barefoot, I'll do that. Um, but I wear flat, very flat shoes, um, and I take the insert out, which makes them even flatter. There's no attempt at supporting, quote unquote, supporting the muscles. We don't need support. We have plenty of support. In fact, if you put on a shoe that has support, we run the risk of weakening the muscles. It's like wearing a knee brace. If you wear a knee brace, your muscles get weaker. Back brace, any kind of brace. Um, so uh, the the shoes I wear uh, now, I'm hardly ever in shoes, but when I wear them, they they're very flat, and um, uh, and they don't attempt to do anything other than protect my feet from uh, the junk that you see out there. Well, I think that answer is going to be music to Blaze's ears. So that is, you're very much on the same, you're singing from the same hymn sheet, I think. I think so. <laughs> um, and one final tradition on the podcast is that we always ask guests for book recommendations. I know you're the author of many, many books, um, but what books have you found yourself that aren't your books recommending to other people, books that you found helpful for yourself or books that you kind of really have um, been impacted by? Oh dear. Um I like uh Paul Larson's uh book uh on hit training. So if you build your aerobic system and you still want to train with high intensity uh activities, my recommendation is to do it right. And Paul's book is, is it, it's sort of a textbook. It, it's not a, a simple, it's not a simplistic cookbook. Uh, readers have to think when they read it. And I do, I did provide a chapter about being healthy and fit in that. But, but Paul goes through, um, uh, the, the process of HIT training to avoid overtraining and to get the most out of it, uh, in a, in a very good way. So, um I I have to say I don't read a lot of books. I've read I've 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 written too many of them and so maybe I've become allergic to them. My reading is all in the the journal articles. Um and if I do read a book, it's a textbook and if I do read a textbook, it's online. There there's so many books now online that I I can't remember the last time I actually bought a book. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, that's a book that's never nobody's ever recommended before. So that's another one to add to the reading list for sure. Um, Phil, it's been absolutely fascinating chatting to you. Um, I, I, as soon as uh, Ian mentioned that your name, it was like that, that's definitely a name I would love to get on the podcast. So um, there's loads. I've written loads of notes, loads of great takeaways for me, loads of things that I can go research and follow up on. So um, it's been absolutely brilliant getting getting you on. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you so much. Thanks, yeah. Charlie. Thanks, Claire. It's been a lot of fun. I, I appreciate it. Let me know when when you when you release this, and I'll uh, I'll help get the word out. 
Fantastic. Thank, Thank you, you so much. So, um, Charlie, we are looking at some exciting changes to Tribathlon. So tell me a little bit about what that's going to look like. Well, I, I think um, the Tribathlon podcast was born out of me wanting to launch an app, which um, to use to use positive language, has the app has proved to be a learning experience rather than a um, positive experience. I've learned a lot about um, app development in that time, but we still don't have an app that I think is viable. And in fact, I, I think in today's landscape, it's no longer viable. So the Tribathlon app, is no more and therefore the tribathlon podcast has no the, the name of it now has no real i mean I, and I, lo- I still love the name the tribathlon podcast but i think gradually as as we've talked more and more on this podcast and i've more mm-hmm. moved more and more into business coaching and you've got your sort of um your coaching in terms of helping athletes and people in the corporate world from mm-hmm. a nutritional point of view i think we've kind of evolved this podcast into gradually talking more about well okay what can people take from the world of insurance sport now it might be that they're taking training techniques but it's also i think lessons in life and in business Mm -hmm. um, that is really where we've ended up finding the most you know creating the most value finding the most interest Um, and so i think now is the time this is the this is the end of season five which is absolutely amazing i can't believe we've done five seasons of, of the of the podcast I think now is the time to kind of transition this into the business of pod. Uh, sorry, no, not the business of podcast. The business of endurance podcast. Amazing, um, I like because, it because I think it's like you know what can we all take from the world of endurance? But we still want the mm-hmm. same amazing people on the podcast. Mm-hmm. We still want to be interviewing people that are some some inspirational, some more educational. Um, but it also wants to really be kind of with an underlying tone of of business as well as life, mm. I think. Um, so, yeah, and, and I'm sure, you know, how, how do you think that fits in more in terms of what you get out of the podcast? Yeah, I think I, well, I think the, the name says it all in terms of the business of endurance. And I think, you know, when I joined uh, Tribathlon, I think with many of those endurance athletes, there are so many parts that, even you know even months and months ago I was thinking actually you know what by applying those principles of how an elite athlete or somebody in the world of endurance sport if you could apply that into business actually thinking about sort of performance and resilience um so I I I love the idea and actually we've we've already interviewed many people that have given us quite a lot in terms of to think about from a business perspective um so I think I think this is great and I think it will give us all like a greater depth of of knowledge and I've already got some some questions that we that I want to ask some of our new guests as well so um I'm really excited about it I think I think it will be it will be great I, I agree and I think um you know we've got some really exciting guests lined up for the next season uh the first one in particular I which I'm going to keep secret for now but I think it's just a, such a brilliant first episode to talk where we mm-hmm. can actually talk about business but about resilience in business, about resilience yep. in family, about resilience in life and resilience in sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I think that is just the perfect episode to tee us off. Um, yep. But I think so looking back over season five and uh, again, amazing series of guests, loads of learning 
from me, I, I feel like this whole journey has been a massive, massive learning journey for, mm. for me. Um, what are a couple of couple of your highlights from season five? Yeah, we've had we've had a really great range of actually different athletes in this series, I think, and it's it's um there has actually been some uh, conversations that we've already had around sort of business, haven't, haven't there as well? Mm. Um, but I think from an athlete perspective, um. One that really stands out, and I just love speaking to some of the kind of older school original endurance athletes, and one of those would be Karen Smyers that we uh, that mm. we interviewed. Um, and I just I just loved actually hearing some of the stories and actually hearing about kind of the true grit. And I guess again that kind of leads us into the world of, of business as well. But um, she had some great stories, some great takeaways in terms of her resilience um but I know you particularly liked her uh, her way to taper didn't you the three two one oh I love the three <laughs> two one taper the three two one taper exactly on my wavelength three beers and three nights before <laughs> two beers two nights before one beer one night before I tend to replace that with red wine as opposed to beer but um for the obviously for the all of the antitoxins antioxidants that he's got but um uh, <laughs> just brilliant i i loved her approach i thought she was yeah. absolutely brilliant i, I agree um and mm. what else what, another, what give me another moment that stands out for you uh i think um when we interviewed katie um Zephyrus, actually i think that that for me um i think in in the world of um sport in general we're seeing i would like to say an explosion in a way of actually female athletes um having maybe well not even a year out having having children and coming back into sport and doing amazingly well and the ability to be able to actually be really flexible and move their life around being able to train as a full-time athlete but actually be able to um be a be a full-time mum and have a family um and I think again you know talking to her she was kind of really sort of talking in the moment of living that and the lessons that she's learning along the way um and I think there's many um athletes at the moment that we're seeing professional athletes that are doing extremely well um oh. so I liked I liked the kind of in the moment nature of that that she was still learning her kind of finding her feet in that world of sport that she knew before but in a slightly a slightly different place so that for me I yeah I thought was was brilliant what about for you what what who was who was somebody that sort of really stood out or from a learning perspective for you I think there's been so many great things from from this series. Um, I think the things that stood out for me were um, the interview with Will and Raya Usher, because I think this is actually a really good example of where we can take uh, the the Business of Endurance podcast, because how they've adopted AI into the coaching business and how they're using AI to allow them to focus on emotional intelligence and get the AI doing the the, Mm -hmm. program building. I think it's just a brilliant example of how we, you know, business has to go. You know, we have to be looking at ways that we can use AI to do get rid of the repetitive and the um, the boring parts of the job, mm-hmm. and allow us to do the human parts of the job yeah. better and more effectively. And mm-hmm. um, so, I, I love that element of that, and I think that's a classic case of where we need to be taking this podcast and future interviews. Um, I really enjoyed chatting to Ian Adamson. I think that was just a, yeah. that whole world of adventure racing and ninja racing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when, particularly when he was describing that race that was up in Scandinavia and he's oh, kind yeah. of like, he's got the Northern lights going above him. He's got killerways, killer whales mm. going alongside his kayak. And he's like, am I actually hallucinating or is this just <laughs> like actually really happening? But yeah. the, 
the lessons around, particularly around the importance of actually sleeping longer than the people mm-hmm. he was co- re- competing against, but yep. using that to be the winner mm-hmm. was, I just mm-hmm. thought really, really brilliant. Uh, I think Jay uh, Blaise Dubois gave us some great advice in terms of avoiding injury. And mm-hmm. like Phil Maffetone is a legend of the of the sport, and yep. it's a name that I've heard mentioned so many times. Mm-hmm. And there was some there was some great advice in there, but it was also interesting to see how that advice has, uh, you know, we see it how it's evolved across, you know, yep. 20, 30 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that was I thought it was really really good, and mm-hmm. um, and I, I think that there's um, there's some great great things. And then one final moment is talking to Ian Hamilton about. Um, the first time he saw somebody with an outlaw tattoo and yeah. just to be able to see, you know, at some point, hope, yeah. you, know, you know, if at some point in my life, I will have a business where somebody tattoos the logo onto their skin <laughs> and then I'll know I have, uh, I've, I've reached um, another level. So I think, yeah. I think that was, uh, that's just really lovely. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think we've, we've got a great next season lined up, mm-hmm. really excited about, changing it and changing it up and bringing in a little bit of different um uh kind of a different feel to it we've mm-hmm. got like i said we've got a brilliant brilliant business owner um lined up for episode one but we've also got some incredibly inspirational stories as well as incredible athletes that we can learn loads from a from a from a practical point of view lined up so um yeah. i think it's going to be great fun it's going to be exciting yeah it is more learning absolutely absolutely and how we can apply that in business i think is going to be really interesting absolutely i agree so that's it season five of the tribe athlon podcast and the last season as the tribe athlon podcast but don't Mm -hmm. fret it's coming back and it'll be even better next time so uh, so look out for the business of endurance podcast and look out for um season six of of uh of this roadshow it's going to be great fun If you like what we do at the Tribathlon podcast, you've got to register for Tribe Talk. It's an email that comes out every two weeks, packed full of everything to do with swim, bike and run, but also nutritional help, business coaching and a whole lot more. Whether that's books, videos, TED Talks, apps or technologies, it's packed full of ideas that can help improve your sport, your life and your business. So register for it at tribeathlon.com. And you'll be sure that every two weeks, your inbox is full of some amazing ideas and resources to improve your life. And remember, this episode was brought to you by The Trusted Team and by Fourth Discipline. So if you want to find out more about how The Trusted Team can help you grow your business and improve your work-life balance, go to thetrusted.team. And if you want to find out more about how Fourth Discipline can help take your performance in sport and life to the next level, go to fourthdiscipline.com. enjoyed this podcast please do review it and share it because it helps other people find what we think is really valuable learning lessons from amazing athletes and um, so please do that um, you can also find the whole back catalogue at tribeathlon.com <laughs>